Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust's Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organisation, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. This week, in addition to reviewing the week's most important news and announcements from the investment trust sector, I'm joined to discuss the market and investment trust outlook by Chris Clothier, one of the three managers of Capital Gearing Trust. You may think it's a bit over the top following last week's conversation with Duncan McInnes of Ruffer to have two of the more defensive and bearishly inclined investment trust managers on in successive weeks, particularly when markets themselves have been in such a positive phase. I can assure you this won't happen often. It's just an accident of the scheduling. And I hasten to say it's not because I've personally been inclined towards a bearish view and therefore trying uh, over hard, you might think, to confirm my own biases, one of the most dangerous things you can do as an investor. As it happens, I have around a dozen different guests now lined up for the next few weeks, including a number of well-known equity managers, such as Simon Barnard of Smithson and Simon Edelson of Midwind International, So there will be a broader spectrum of opinions for you to chew on as we move into the spring. However, I think there is justification in returning to a multi-asset trust manager this week, even one with a bearish outlook, because this week's news has all been about central banks and how the markets have reacted to their latest decisions. We've heard this week uh, interest rate increases for the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England and the European Central Bank all coming in as expected all increasing their key interest rates by 25, 50 and 50 basis points respectively. But the market's initially responding uh, like a purring cat. Equity markets promptly rising and bond yields declining sharply once investors had absorbed both the decisions themselves and the mood music from the central banker press conferences that followed. That positive mood faded a little yesterday, though, after another strong non-farm payrolls report in the U.S., where the economy continues to be surprisingly resilient despite the Fed's intensive tightening measures. It may be worth emphasising that microeconomic factors, growth, inflation, interest rates and liquidity, always the primary factors that drive investment trust performance. Important though specific trust and asset class factors are for individual trusts and sectors over shorter time periods. In particular, get the markets right and you will mostly get the general direction of discount movements of investment trusts right as well. That's why these macro factors matter so much. So more on all that in a moment. Turning to investment trust sector performance, equity investment trusts have shared in the last few months of growing bullishness with the global and Europe sectors leading the way this week and China and the Asia Pacific sector still out ahead of the year to date by more than 10%, up more than 10%. Discounts overall have only narrowed slightly, somewhat surprisingly, in that context, although there's been a modest improvement this week in the property infrastructure and private equity trusts. As of Friday morning, before the latest uh, US jobless figures came out, the Investment Trust Index, which records the performance of the 190-odd trusts which feature in the FTSE All Share Index, was up 3% so far this year. And the average discount has dropped a little, but only from a bit over 13% to around 12% now, which is still fairly wide, certainly by recent experience. Turning to the news this week, the flow of company results and NAV updates turned into something approaching a flood this week, 
particularly from uh, alternatives, with at least 10 commercial or specialist property trusts reporting their latest NAV updates and several renewable energy trusts doing likewise. The property trust results, too many to list in full, I'm afraid, make for grim reading with the great majority of Q4 NAV declines ranging from 15 to 25 percent, underlying how the markets, which have pushed many property trust shares out to huge discounts, had correctly anticipated the impact of higher interest rates on valuations a few months back. That's what markets do, they anticipate. As usual, you can find a summary of all this week's investment trust news, including all those NAV updates, listed on the Moneymakers website, along with details of the best and worst performers over the week and year to date. Our in-depth profile this week for subscribers is of Polar Capital Technology, ticker PCT. The NAV updates from the Renewable Energy Trust this week, which included Octopus Renewables, ORIT, Ecofin Renewables Infrastructure, RNEW, and Aquila European Renewables, AERS, were much less uh, scary, with NAVs either flat or slightly up over the fourth quarter, uh, although they remain on discounts of 8, 11, and 15% respectively. The Aquila Trust, which has been under fire for the time it's taken to commit the money it raised at IPO, also becomes the first renewables vehicle to announce a share buyback program. There was an update, too, from Riverstone Energy, ticker RSE, the US-based private equity trust which switched to an explicit decarbonisation strategy in 2020 and is one of the best performers over the last 12 months. And then among other offerings this week to highlight are contrasting results from two popular UK equity trusts, Aberforth Smaller Companies, ticker ASL, and Henderson Opportunities Trust, HOT. In a poor year, a very poor year for small and mid-cap trusts, the former reported a NAV total return of minus 10.4%, which was nevertheless a credible performance against its smaller company's benchmarks minus 17.9% decline. The managers note that after the mauling that small and mid-cap markets took last year, its portfolio, which it runs on a deep value basis, now trades on a PE of just 8.1 times. Ahead of its uh, latest three-year continuation vote next month, the trust is increasing its dividend by 10.8% and also paying a special dividend of 8.3p, despite those poor headline results. Henderson Opportunities Trust, uh, meanwhile, has a policy of maintaining permanent gearing, which makes its share price much more volatile than most, and a mandate to invest more widely across the UK market capitalisation spectrum. It reported a very disappointing NAV total return, down 26.4%. This is a poor performance when measured against the FTSE All Share Index, which is its benchmark, down 2.8% for the year to the end of October. But actually not far out of line, a little bit worse than the small and mid-cap indices, where the majority of its portfolio tends to concentrate. The board of HOT urges shareholders to keep the trust in business when its continuation vote also comes round next month, pointing out correctly that its long-term record remains strong against its peers and chosen benchmark. It too is raising its dividend from 27.5 to 34p. Other trust reporting annual results include BlackRock Income and Growth, BRIG, down a fraction less than the All-Share Index over the same end October year, NAV total return minus 2.3%, Aberdeen Private Equity Opportunities, APEO, had a 14% NAV gain over the year to 30th September last year. But of course, its discount has widened in line with its peers. And Chrysalis, 
ticker CHRY, which uh, produced its annual report describing its uh, shocking minus 41% NEV total return and 76% share price total return decline for the year to the end of September. Its shares have recovered a little since that low point, despite further NAV declines, and its discount has narrowed to around 33% as I speak. On the news front also this week, we heard from Castelnau Group, ticker CGL, the distinctive Consular UK equity portfolio run by Gary Channon of Phoenix Asset Management, which listed last October and has uh, had a tough start to life, I think it's fair to say. It's uh, analysis planning a big share placing program in part to help pay for its recent decision to take full control of Dignity, the troubled funeral services business, which is its biggest investment and amongst its worst recent performers. Uh, Shares in this replacing will be issued at 75p, its year-end NAV. Then finally on the news front, in what I suppose I should call the obituary section, we had further details about three trusts which are on the way out of existence. Doric Nimrod Air One, ticker DNA, the aircraft leasing company, delisted this week after returning all its cash to shareholders. MB Global Monthly Income, ticker NBMI, where 99% of shareholders approved the board's winding up proposals. And Starwood European Real Estate Finance, ticker SWEF, another debt fund where shareholders have done the same, uh, approving the winding up process. I predict with some confidence that there will be a number of other departures from the Investment Trust universe this year, as normally happens after a severe bear market like the one we've experienced since the start of last year. So this week, it was a very opportune moment to uh, catch up with my guest this week, who is uh, Chris Clothier, who is one of the fund managers at Capital Gearing Trust the uh, absolute return trust. I like to call it that. It's uh, managed to make a positive return in every 12-month period, except a couple over the last 40 years or so. So it's a very impressive record. But this week, obviously, been dominated by announcements of the central banks. And uh, we've had interest rate decisions from the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, and the European Central Bank. And they've all come in exactly as the markets were expecting with an interest rate rise of 25 basis points, 50 basis points, and 50 basis points, respectively. But the markets have been really liked it. They've been on a tear for the last few months, three, four months. Uh, Equity markets like it. The bond yields market likes it a bit as well. And the old market saying is, I'm going to throw you a couple of old market sayings. The first one I'm going to throw at you, Chris, is don't fight the Fed. Well, the markets seem determined to fight the Fed, don't they? They've been basically saying the Fed is going to pivot and it's all going to be fine for some time now. So what's going on? Hello, Jonathan. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks very much for inviting me on. Yes, I mean, it's been a really busy week and it's been really fascinating because, as you say, all of the central banks came in in line with expectations. And in every case, the market interpreted, um, I guess, the commentary around their decisions in a very dovish fashion. And so we've seen expectations of future rate cuts increase and come forward. We've seen bond yields fall and we've seen equities flying off to the moon this week, particularly the kind of more speculative things that took a particular hammering over last year. Frankly, it's left us at CG scratching our heads. We don't really understand what's going on here. I think that there's two possible explanations. And here we're sort of delving into market psychology. So take all of this with, you know, bucket loads of salt. 
But one of them is that market participants like me and like you spend a huge amount of time parsing the precise words and the body language and the things they didn't say and all the rest of it. And there's a tendency for these events to be a raw sash test. Um, and actually, you take from them what you want. And the markets, and possibly this is just human nature that, um, you know, all of us want to believe that everything's going to turn out and be okay, don't we? And so therefore, we hear the nicer, fluffier, softer things from the central bankers and don't hear the harder, more hawkish rhetoric. That's one possibility. And the other possibility that my colleague Emma put forward this morning was, well, you know, maybe this is just a sort of a market psychological phenomenon, which is that we're, we're now there. We kind of know where the end of the road is. I mean, that is something that I think is, we're, we're pretty close to. So yes, you know, the Fed raised to four and a half. I think the Fed has now made it really pretty clear that we can expect two more quarter point rate hikes and that they're then going to hold it there. But that how long they're going to hold it there, I think, is the thing that the markets and the Fed disagree on. The ECB are going to raise probably by two more 50 basis point hikes and goes to three and a half percent. It was interesting. There was a, a slip with uh, Christine Lagarde in the press conference yesterday when she said, I'm sorry, we're recording this on Friday morning, by the way, when she said that um, she was committed to two further rate hikes um, and she then corrected herself. And then, you know, the BOE is probably somewhere around the four and a quarter mark. So the markets have decided essentially that, as you say, they can see where things are going. Basically, they can see some removal of uncertainty. But what we don't know, of course, is what's going to really happen, if you like, in the real world, in the real economy. So we're going to see inflation come down. That seems expected. And, and we don't know how far down it's going to come. At the same time, we don't know what's really driving that fall in inflation, how far that's just the interest rate rises and how far it's actually the result of what's going on in the economy, whether there's going to be a recession or not, and so on. And kind of implicit in the market view is that somehow I think we're going to avoid a bad recession. We're going to have you know, this famous soft landing. But is that credible based on uh, you know, reading of history and so on? I would put you, but maybe it's not credible. Well, sorry, I don't want to just furiously agree with you on everything, Jonathan, but yes, um, I think that does seem pretty incredible. And there's two reasons why that is. I, I think you had uh, Duncan McInnes of uh, Ruffer on your podcast last week, and he made the point that, well, you just have to look at the history of tightening cycles, and they tend to end in either a nasty recession or a financial crisis or both. And I think he's absolutely right about that. But the other reason why we think that a, a soft landing, which, as you say, very much seems to be baked into market expectations, seems incredible, is that in order to get inflation under control, you need to get wages under control. And wages currently, depending on what the measure you look at, so the Atlanta Fed wage tracker is at 6.1%, the employment cost index is annualizing at 4%. But whichever one of those is more representative of the truth, they're still higher than the level that wages need to be to, for the Fed to hit its target. And the only way that you can really get wages under control is by getting the unemployment rate above the, the famous and mythical NIRU, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment that uh, central bankers are so fond of. Now, of course, unemployment in the US is at three and a half percent at the moment. Estimates of the NIRU range from four and a quarter to four and a half percent. So that means that you need at least a hundred basis points, a one percent rise in the unemployment rate to get to that kind of neutral position. 
And uh, there's never been an instance in American economic history where you've seen a rise of that size without there being a recession. So we are firmly not in the soft landing camp. Of course, the, the tricky question is whether you get a hard landing or whether the Fed chickens out and pivots and you then get into a sort of Arthur Burns-esque early 1970s stop-start inflationary regime. Yeah. We'll have to see how that goes, of course. Another old market adage or another fact of market history, though, and if you look at the equity market just for a moment, the six months after the midterm elections in the US, always been positive. And guess what? They've been positive since the midterm elections. And the US market is, what, up about 17%, I think, the US market's up. The FTSE uh, has actually gone to an all-time high, which is something we've been waiting quite a long time for, I think. So the logic of what you're saying, I mean, I have to apologize, we've had two fairly kind of bearish people on the podcast now for two weeks running. That's just uh, how things have fallen. But essentially what you must be saying, therefore, is that this rally is going to run out of steam quite soon. And we're not going to go on seeing the equity markets roaring ahead. Though it's been interesting, we've seen tech stocks coming bouncing back. We've seen Cathy Wood's arc coming back from the dead. All those, you know, kind of high growth techie things, which seems to be more like a sort of Pavlov's dog reaction rather than a question of fundamentals. What do you think about that? You know, I think it's dangerous to opine on short-term market moves. But essentially, yes, I would agree with you. I mean, Kathy Wood was on television yesterday, I believe, saying that really her ARK ETF represented growth and innovation better than the NASDAQ did. And, you know, that really sounded like hubris to me. And, you know, and that's the thing. I Also, the other thing that I think we can say with some level of certainty is that the next probably two years are going to be characterized by being um, in a below-trend growth in terms of GDP. And as we discussed just a second ago, the thing that's less certain is whether that's a sort of a stagflationary environment or a recessionary environment. But the one thing, if it's a recessionary environment, then you definitely don't want to be owning equities and you want to be owning essentially anything but equities. If it's a stagflationary environment, well, there's, there's a reasonable chance that equities do okay under that scenario. But history would show that other assets, gold, index-linked bonds, for example, do just as well in a stagflationary environment and do so with considerably less risk and without the uncertainty of, well, actually, are we going to, into a recession? And so that's why I would be saying that at the margin, and, and forgive the jargon, one should be fading this rally. Indeed. Before we, we come on to talk about what you're doing in the trust or how you've been reacting to all this, I'm looking through you know, some of the price movements this year. This is in US dollars, what we've seen so far this year. And obviously, we've seen coppers up 8%. You know, Dr. Coppers up 8%. The US up market is about up about 8% this year. UK uh, a little bit behind that. And of course, emerging markets are doing well. And emerging markets uh, in particular, because the dollar has been weak and so on, you know, that seems to be, again, another kind of natural market reaction where the dollar goes down, people buy emerging markets. Before we move on, I want to ask you what's happening in Japan, where the Bank of Japan is pursuing a very different policy to the uh, other central banks you've talked about. What's important about what's going on there? I think it's really important that we don't forget what's going on with the BOJ at the moment. Now, there were no announcements, formal announcements from the BOJ, although there was one article that I read in Reuters saying that they are committing to not adjusting monetary policy, which would include the yield curve control before the end of Governor Kuroda's term. So that, that's interesting. But 
The Bank of Japan is under a phenomenal amount of pressure. As you'll recall, they sort of softened, they loosened their yield curve control, which is where the Bank of Japan will buy bonds to stop the 10-year yield rising. And they, they made that change in December. And since then, the market has been really aggressively testing that policy. So over the course of January, they bought $182 billion worth of bonds. That is 3.6% of Japanese GDP. That's a truly astronomical sum of money. And there are other signs of stress. So there's this massive kink in the yield curve where they're controlling the 10-year rate, but the rate on either side is much higher. And that's because they really, I guess, are having to conserve their firepower and, and only exert it on the bit of the, the yield curve that they've said that they absolutely will be targeting and they can't target the rest. And then finally, they've come out and said that they're going to start offering loans essentially on a subsidized basis to commercial banks in order to go and buy JGBs, essentially saying, I guess we are struggling to do this job ourselves. We need some help from you guys. And so in some respects, I think that the most interesting central bank to be watching at the moment is the Bank of Japan rather than the big three that we've been hearing lots about this week. And I think you're very keen on Japan as an investment opportunity. What is your argument there? I mean, you've made the point about how the central bank is under a lot of pressure being challenged by the markets on its interest rate policy and interest rate control. But there is a new central bank governor coming up in the next few months. And I've heard some explanations that basically they're trying to hold the fort until the new guy comes in and can change the policy a little bit. Tell us what you think about Japanese bonds and what you think about Japanese equities in the light of that. Well, I think the first thing you'd have to say is that Japanese bonds, one should be pretty cautious about, given that if they're going to abandon yield curve control, then all else being equal, you know, you'd expect bonds to go down. Japanese equities, we think, are fundamentally very cheap, and Japanese currency, we think, are fundamentally very cheap. So on the equity front, and I was uh, listening to a presentation by fund manager of JP Morgan Japan Investment Trust, and it was a fascinating presentation. So in the EPS growth in yen for the topics since 2010 has equaled that of the S&P 500. So that's an impressive earnings growth track record. Uh, 50% of stocks are net cash and um, have net cash. Um, the forward PE is 12 and the return on equity for the index as a whole is 8.3. So, you know, you put all of that together and that sounds like a very reasonable starting point. Then you turn to the currency. And I think you can just make a really good case that the yen is just fundamentally the wrong price. And this again comes from the manager of JP Morgan Japan. He had eaten lunch at a restaurant in New York um, that is a chain restaurant that also has restaurants in Japan. And so in Tokyo, his lunch, a bento box, costs about $7.35. And in New York, it costs $32. Similarly, if you're um, trying to hire a Starbucks worker in the US in a metropolitan area, they get paid $25 an hour. In Tokyo, that's $8 to $9 an hour. Um, you know, these are just staggering differences. And similarly, we've heard anecdotes of the fact that uh, it's cheaper to hire a junior software engineer in Tokyo than it is in Vietnam, um, that manufacturing labor um, is cheaper in Japan than it is in China. So, you know, we put all of that together and we say, well, you know, one of two things is going to happen. Either the yen is going to stay fantastically cheap, and in which case you would expect the Japanese companies 
earnings to grow very strongly because they're just fantastically competitive against the rest of the world. Or the yen needs to appreciate and brackets, what will be the trigger for that? Well, I guess that would be a, a change in Japanese monetary policy. And in which case, you know, sure, perhaps the, the equities don't outperform other equities around the world, but, but hopefully that's more than compensated for in the currency. So we're really constructive on the yen and on Japanese equities for those kind of combined reasons, I guess. But you're not so impressed by the possibility of investing in China. Uh, do you have some uh, rooted objections to investing in China? Are they uh, strategic, if you like? I mean, the Chinese market has been very strong this year. Chinese investment trusts have done very well. What's your opinion about China, particularly vis-a-vis Japan? I think the first thing to say is that I think we as a house think that we know very little about China and we find it hard to understand. And therefore, we just think it's easier if the, you know we put it in the too difficult bucket. But again, that's actually one of the reasons why we think that Japan could do well, because of the fact that Japan's single largest trading partner is China. And obviously, the China reopening story is a very big story. And so, again, that ought to be supportive. And there's one other thing on on Japan as well, which is that they are sort of only just coming out of their COVID cocoon. So they're much further behind Western countries in terms of that sort of reopening exuberance. And so that should provide a bit of a tailwind. Okay, so this obviously is an investment trust podcast. I'll come back to some of the sort of sectors and, and what's happening in the investment trust world in a moment. But I just wanted to finally on this uh, look at your kind of asset allocation. I thought I'd go back and look at how you were basically uh, positioned back in, well, at the end of your last financial year, which is back in April. So that's uh, about nine months ago. And how you are positioned now. Basically, as I can see it, you've got a lot more in index link and you've got a, a, quite a lot less in funds and equities. Uh, and we might drill down into the funds and equities a bit later. And top of your holdings now, you've got a lot of UK index linked. I think something like uh, your top 10 holdings, three of them are UK index linked, and they add up to about 15% of your overall asset allocation. And you haven't owned many of these for years. So uh, just repeat to us the story why you're so keen on UK index linked or have been. Absolutely. And, And I think that, you know, we are keen on index linked generally. But the big story of 2022 was the change in valuations in UK index linked. And essentially, we felt for years and years and years that UK index linked were uninvestable. I think that pretty much the entire curve went negative in terms of real yields in about 2015, 2016, and then became profoundly negative to the point where, you know, 10-year real yields got close to touching minus four. And so we exited UK index linked for all but the shortest duration bonds, because we were worried about the fact that if those real yields rise, then as an investor, you uh, suffer capital losses. But as things stand today, um, you can essentially get you know, zero or positive real yields uh, the whole way across the curve. And you know, in an uncertain world, we think that's a pretty attractive place to be. You know, clearly, there was a, an opportunity in September, October during the Trust-mageddon, as I suppose we might call it, when you know, yields went absolutely bananas. And you know, we saw long-dated UK government bonds trading like cryptocurrencies. And um, we certainly were in the market buying over that period although it required quite a lot of nerve. Um, And of course, with hindsight, we should have done more. But nevertheless, the the purchases that we made uh, look pretty satisfactory as we look back at that. Yes, there's uh, something about UK financial history, isn't there? I mean, I remember the ERM debacle. I mean, UK governments keep on giving to investors, unfortunately, by making such a mess of things that uh, you can make some good money out of the disaster. 
How far do you think we can see this movement in uh, both index-linked and government bonds obviously have done very well as well in capital terms in the last few weeks and months of yields have come down. How much further do you think we can go in this particular trend? It's really hard to say. And I suppose the point that we would say is that as things stand today, UK linkers look attractive on a whole to maturity basis, certainly out to 10 years. And we're not particularly looking for capital gains. We're just looking to preserve and modestly add to the real value of our clients' capital over that sort of time. On the one hand, we believe in the financial repression thesis. And that's to say that there's too much debt in this world and that that debt needs to be dealt with. And the way that it gets dealt with is by holding short-term interest rates below the rate of inflation for an extended period of time. And that means that you have negative real interest rates. And that means that capital gains to the owners of longer dated index linked bonds. So that's our kind of long-term thesis. But on the other hand, you can see quite a lot of countervailing trends. So for example, you know, the UK government just has to sell a truly enormous number of gilts to cover the deficits. And they're going to be doing so at a time when the Bank of England is running down its balance sheet. You know, for the kind of two years post the COVID crisis, all of the extra issuance of gilts was essentially mopped up by the BOE. You know, now the reverse of that is happening. So that would argue to say that yields could rise. And then finally, there's the whole question of the LDI debacle and and pension funds. And I've heard reasonably persuasive arguments in both directions. One says that, of course, the funding position of pension funds is so much better now that actually they can, as it were, just buy gilts and completely match their liabilities. And so that should be positive for gilts. On the other hand, there is still a certain amount of leverage in the system. We don't know how much. And clearly, the psychological experience that trustees would have had in October would lead them to be more cautious and unwind some of the gearing. And you know, I'm afraid to say it's just really hard to work out how that's going to play out. So I mean, it has been extraordinary, not only the reaction yesterday to the central bank moves, but I mean, we saw some very sharp movements in bond yields yesterday. And the UK 10 years down to what 3% now, I think, something like that. If it goes much lower than that, we would be going back to some kind of different economic environment, would we not? I mean, if you've got a 2% inflation target, 3% sounds, you know, in a happy world, that would be, okay, possibly a, a sensible level. But uh, it's hard to see it going much, much lower unless, as you say, there's a really bad economic recession. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and I think, I think there's, another, there's another possibility in all of this, which is that there's a kind of a, a standard investor heuristic, which is to say, you know, this recent inflationary event has been something of a blip, and we're going to go back to the regime that was in place over the past 20 years. And so what was that regime? Well, it was one of low inflation, globalization, accommodative monetary policy, fiscal accommodation, and low interest rates. And of course, it's entirely possible that we are going back to that world. But I think that investors need to think about the possibility that we're entering a different regime. And that regime might be characterized by higher nominal interest rates, higher and more volatile inflation. And under that scenario, a 3% 10-year gilt really doesn't make sense. Now, we can't be certain about what the world holds, but we have to at least acknowledge the possibility that the future might look really quite different to the past 20 years. 
Indeed, and certainly that would be, uh, I think, a, a plausible uh, explanation. We can't go back necessarily to where we were before, and, and, and certainly, as you say, it would be surprising, I think, if uh, that was the case. A lot of implications if that is true. Let's drill down then into investment trusts now. Obviously, you're an investment trust and you do what you do, but you also uh, own a lot of other investment trusts, and that's where you go fishing for most of your risk exposure uh, when you took it on. And you have, as I said before, you've reduced your holdings quite substantially. What we've seen, obviously, in the last few weeks is we've seen, well, interestingly, across the sector as a whole, according to the uh, the index of investment trusts, at least those are the larger ones, discounts haven't really moved very much. And you'd have thought that with the markets going quite strongly, that you would have seen a slightly bigger movement in uh, average investment trust discounts. Obviously, there's been some quite a lot of uh, difference between the sectors. Uh, but just on that general point, what do you think is going on there? Why, are you being surprised that there hasn't been more of a, of, a, of a sort of discount movement across the market as a whole? Certainly, you're absolutely right that we buy investment trusts and we typically seek to exploit closing discounts as part of that. And at the moment, we are definitely more actively selling rather than buying. So there's a number of situations that we put on over the course of last year. And if you look at our fact sheets and commentary, you probably can guess what some of those were. And we're easing our way out of them now. I think that why you haven't seen discounts tighten is perhaps because of the presence of private companies in more and more investment trusts. And that's particularly true in some of the very large investment trusts, so you know, Scottish Mortgage, Rick Capital, and then of course from Scottish Mortgage, a lot of the other Bailey Gifford managed funds. And so Scottish Mortgage is a sort of twelve billion pound trust and you know is a very large component of the overall index. And that is on a 16% discount at the moment. And I think that investors are rightly a bit nervous, first of all, whether that is a true discount. And the reason being that 31% of the portfolio is in private companies. And while it's absolutely true that Bailey Gifford have a very thorough and valuation process, and I believe on average have marked them down about 38% or thereabouts, Nevertheless, those valuation write-downs are much less than um, public market comparables for the you know, similar sorts of very high growth uh, investments, uh, particularly in the US. So it could be that the discount is actually much less um, than it would appear to be. But the other consequence is that their gearing is now relatively high. It stands at 17%. And of course, one way that discounts can be controlled is by boards buying in their stock. But if you've got your gearing at a high level, then the board's going to be much more reluctant to buy in stock. And so, yeah, I mean, I think if you put all of that together, um, then that would you know, suggest caution. So two sectors that you had quite significant exposure in a year ago would be commercial property and renewables both of which have been impacted by higher bond yields in reaction to uh, the trust government, among other things, and also the introduction of windfall tax on the renewables companies. And then there'd be a lot of argument about whether or not they have to reduce their or increase their discount rates when bond yields are rising. But of course, bond yields are now falling again. So it's a kind of complex picture here. But what have you been doing with your commercial property holdings? You had quite a significant chunk in them. And then they got obviously got hit quite badly in the third, fourth quarter. We've had a lot of results this week from commercial property trusts, all with very, very big markdowns in NAVs, more than 20% in some cases. What have you been doing through that uh, particular cycle? They've obviously recovered a bit since then, but where do you think it's going, that uh, particular sector? 
So commercial property, so we've been in the jargon in meds, beds and sheds. So we steer clear of commercial property and retail um, and have been more in logistics and um, residential and these sorts of areas. And so these were a kind of fantastic source of return for us in the latter half of 2020 and 2021. And so at our peak, we had about 20% of the portfolio. And then we sort of were reducing those fairly consistently over the course of 21 and early 22. And clearly with hindsight, we didn't do anywhere near quite enough. And our thesis uh, at the time was that we were buying into property companies whose rental streams we thought would be highly correlated with inflation, either explicitly in the form of RPI leases or residential rents, which tend to follow wages very closely. And that part of the thesis was reasonably correct. And while we were concerned about rising yields, we felt that the rise in rents ought to more than compensate for that. And so overall, you'd do reasonably well. Of course, what happened is that investors marked them down very aggressively, and they then have traded down to very substantial discounts to NAV. So our property holdings were, uh, we had reduced them down to about 9% towards the end of last summer, and then they stand at 5% today. And that's through a mixture of continued sales, but also through price action. I think, you know, if you, if you look, for example, at some of the long lease property companies, so uh, Tritex Big Box, Supermarket Income Re, LXI, and so forth, I think they're starting to be at levels that mean that they'd be attractive long-term investments. So if you say that, that Supermarket Income Re, um, I think that their valuation yield at the end of June was 4.5%. I think that historically speaking, high quality supermarket yields have topped out at five, five and a quarter percent. So perhaps that suggests something of the order of a little over 10% downside to the valuation. And so, you know, perhaps the the underlying NAV might be about, you know, 100p or so. And they're trading at a very slight premium to that and paying a dividend yield, I think today of 5.8%, which I think, you know, broadly, they ought to be able to increase in line with inflation. And so that, I think, looks reasonably attractive. But on the other hand, I think we need to be aware that perhaps their balance sheets will come under pressure. And of course, some of them who don't have as long-term debt will need to refinance their debt at much higher rates, and that might put dividends under some pressure. So I think that we're at a valuation level now, which means that these higher quality assets are probably reasonably attractive, um, but I'd say there's still a reasonably wide funnel of outcomes. Yes, I think in one of your reports, you said you were hoping to pick up some bargains in the wreckage of the commercial property sector. But you seem to be saying that it's not complete, that process necessarily, or at least they're not absolutely bargain basically at this level. But. Yeah, I think that's right. And also kind of coming back to our earlier point, which is that we're not wanting to take on too much risk across the portfolio in general. Um, and so we're sort of operating something close to a one-in-one-out policy in order to keep our risk assets below 30%. So that's, a, that's the overriding factor. Uh, before we leave the property sector, I just want to ask you about, um, I don't know how to describe or what word you would use, but the misfortunes of the social housing sector. You have been a shareholder in Civitas Social Housing, for example. I don't know if you still are. You were at the time of the last annual report. And even more, they've had problems with home REIT, which does look a very, very messy situation. Are you still involved in any of those trusts? And what do you think about the social housing? What can they do? I mean, also part of your proposition is you tend to be quite activist with, with investment trust boards. Have you been giving some helpful advice to the board of Civitas Social Housing, shall we say, for example, to the extent you can talk about that? 
We do hold a, a small stake in Civitas and um, Triple Point Social Housing, and clearly that's not been a fantastic performer. You know, it's a terribly frustrating situation because, of course, we really want these businesses uh, to succeed because they're providing a very great societal need. I think what's undoubtedly the case was that in the past they possibly overpaid for some of the properties that they took on, particularly in their early days in a rush to deploy capital. And so perhaps the developers of those properties did rather better than they should have done. But on the other hand, they are offering savings to the public purse. So that's encouraging. And I noticed that Triple Point today, I think, have made an announcement that the board and the manager are looking to buy in stock and realize assets and you know use the proceeds from realizing assets either to buy in stock or simply to return uh, capital to shareholders and i think that's eminently commendable and exactly what they should be doing yes i was going to ask that point about uh, the share buyback i mean to the extent they can but in a lot of cases with property trust they have to sell something in order to be able to buy back the shares if they're at a discount uh, that puts a sort of perhaps a useful constraint around them. Would you would you say that? I mean, it's a, if they're uh, they're forced to rationalise the portfolio, they might be selling the best things though to get to get the cash. Yes, and I think that it's particularly challenging when in a rising yield environment, their LTVs are already coming under pressure, and so therefore they need to sell in order to bring their LTVs down and then sell further in order to buy back stock at accretive values. And of course, in times like this, when yields are rising, everybody's balance sheets are perhaps a little more stretched than they would be. So, you know, who is the new buyer that is going to take on the assets that they're seeking to sell? And so that's what creates a dynamic that's quite challenging and, and the dynamic that means that we're still, you know, somewhat cautious on the sector. Uh, just on a more general point, I mean, you're quite keen on the sort of Darwinian process that underlies investment trusts. And if they go to discounts, unlike open-ended funds, they do tend to fade away or get taken out or even closed down. We have seen a few examples of that. It will wind downs, for example, particularly in the debt sector. We've seen uh, a, f- a few examples of that. Do you think that process has uh, got further to go? I know you sh- I'm sure you think it's healthy, but do you think it's got further to go? And uh, is that an opportunity for you guys to make some some money out of that process? Absolutely. If you read the reports of the the brokers that cover the investment trust sector, and this in turn is their conversations with the larger wealth management groups, there really isn't a place for investment trusts other than in you know very particular niches where those investment trusts are smaller than. Ooh, take your pick. Is it 250, 300, 500 million pounds? And so trusts smaller than that, frankly, need to merge or wind up or grow. You know, it's very simple. Obviously, boards are often reasonably reluctant to do that um, because, if you'll forgive the expression, turkeys don't like voting for Christmas. But it's really important that directors remember that where is a business you have lots of external stakeholders whom you need to consider, and in particular, employees in a, in a conventional business. An investment trust is a very unconventional business, and it really has uh, no stakeholders to speak of other than its shareholders and anyone that has lent money to it. Um, and so it has no fundamental need or right to exist. And therefore, if it trades on a significant discount, which we say is essentially equivalent to the shareholders saying that they want their money run by someone else, then shareholders should have their money back in whatever fashion is most appropriate, whether by large stock buybacks, a wind-up or a merger. I guess we're indifferent to how you go about affecting it, and it will vary case by case. Um, But to sit there and do nothing is an abrogation of responsibility. And does that apply, in your view, right across the sector? I mean, we've obviously seen a huge number of new 
trusts come to the market, particularly in alternative assets, where they tend to be more illiquid. That's one of the reasons why they become investment trusts, because they're more illiquid. It's rather harder for them to go through that process, is it not? How do you think your general argument applies to the alternative asset sector? Well, the first thing to say is obviously that because they are invested in illiquid assets, the NAV is a much fuzzier number. And so therefore, taking commercial property as an example, commercial property valuations tend to be backward looking and the market is forward looking. And so for that reason, these large discounts can emerge. But actually, if we roll forward the clock 24 months, perhaps the NAV and the market price will have converged with one another, probably with the NAV coming down towards the market price. So one can be less prescriptive in those sorts of scenarios, partly because one doesn't know what the NAV is um, so clearly, and, and partly because, as you say, the assets are more difficult to realize. But I think that once you have got to the bottom of understanding you know, what the true market value for those assets are, if a sale of them to other parties in the market would result in uh, value in excess of the current share price, then yeah, absolutely. It's the, the, the responsibility of boards to give that very, very careful consideration. Just finally on this point, I mean, there are some examples, admittedly not many, of investment trusts which do sort of come back from the dead. I can think of a couple of examples just off the top of my head. I mean, way back, uh, you know, Harry Nimmo's uh, UK Smaller Companies Trust, that was on the verge of uh, going out of business and then proved to be a really strong performer. And then more recently, we had Polar Capital, their financial trust that nearly went out of business uh, two years ago during the pandemic, and that's uh, done okay since then. Would you say that that's the fault of the markets or is that the fault of the board that they've allowed it to get into a bad situation? I mean, if you have those cases that people do come back from the dead, do you want to give people the chance to prove that they can come back? Well, but I think that, that it is not for the boards to determine what the investors in those trusts want and say, you know, the discount says that investors in that investment trust want something else other than that investment trust. Now, it may turn out that they are wrong. Um, They might be wrong. They might be wrong. But frankly, you know, shareholders should be allowed to make their own mistakes. It's not for boards to try and prevent their mistakes from being made. And especially since you can think of I would suggest many more examples of trusts that have gone on for far too long with poor performance and very high discounts, where presumably the boards delude themselves into thinking that, oh, you know, if we only just hire a new manager or tweak the mandate ever so slightly, then, you know, everything will turn out all right. And most of the time it doesn't. Do you think that it's become too difficult for new trusts to come to the market, in, in particularly equity trusts? I'm not talking about uh, alternatives. You had a lot of those come to the market, and they seem very popular for obvious reasons. They, they were offering something that seemed appropriate for the time. But uh, do you think that it's become too difficult for new trusts to come to the market, equity trusts to come to the market? It's a costly, cumbersome process, let's put it that way, as it should be. Absolutely. And then there are further kind of challenges that the trust sector has versus the open-ended. So, you know, stamp duty would be an obvious one for companies that are UK domiciled. But I think what the markets have shown is that trusts that come to the market either with a very strongly differentiated proposition, and so I'd say in recent years, Smithson Investment Trust would be a good example of that, or trusts that come to the market with a very strong discount control mechanism policy. So a number of the more recent issues offer um, annual tenders at NAV, for example. So it's shown that under either of those two scenarios, it is entirely possible to bring trusts to the market. And in our view, that's exactly as it should be, which is that investors are reasonably skeptical 
about equity trusts where they think there is a, a high chance that they're going to, within reasonably short period of time, lose 10% of their value through a, a discount emerging. And so, yeah, it's right that relatively few should come to the market. We're nearing the end now, but I want to move on and ask you about the renewables. We talked about those there. You had a quite a significant position in them. Obviously, we've had the windfall tax and the higher bond yields for a period at least uh, to cope with. They seem to have stabilised, but most of them are now still trading at a discount. What do you think the outlook for that sector is? And are you interested in it at this stage beyond what you earn already? Yeah, so I suppose the tale of 2022 was that you had a number of factors that were moving in competition with one another. On the one hand, you had high power prices and high forward curves, and that led to NAV increases. And on the other hand, you had the impact of um, the windfall tax and the rising discount rates. And in aggregate, the combination of all of those things was still relatively positive. And so, you know, returns were acceptable over the course of the year from the renewables space. And now a number of those factors are starting to reverse. So clearly, as the forward curve, I think, has roughly halved looking at power prices in the UK. And of course, uh, inflation is coming down, and that's been another major factor in the strong NAV performance. But then also, as you alluded to, uh, discount rates have stopped rising. We probably ought to stop rising, uh, given what's happening in in gilt yields. Um, So if you look at all of that together, we think that these assets can offer somewhere in the region of sort of mid to high single digit returns with reasonably high levels of uh, inflation protection. And that in this world seems like a reasonably attractive place to be. We don't think that they're stormingly attractive. And so we're not adding to our positions at present. So I guess the final question I can put to you, Chris, is this. I mean, you've staked out your view of the world and, and the thesis that you're following. What, if anything, could change your mind? In other words, what would actually prompt you to start going back into more risk assets and so on, or maybe uh, change a view on uh, index linked and so on? What might change your mind? Well, I mean, I think that we are positioned to say that we don't believe in the soft landing thesis. Now, the one thing that where our views have moderated is that we have been surprised by the resilience of both the European economy and the American economy. And so whereas we thought that the sort of either the hard landing or the Fed pivot were things that we expect in reasonably near future, we think that we're probably in a bit of a higher for longer phase, if that makes sense. But the thing that would make us change our mind is that if the data started to bear out the soft landing seemed possible and that we were actually going for a, a level of you know, reasonably elevated growth with moderate inflation. But as yet, we don't see anything that points to that. Indeed. Well, on that note, uh, Chris, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast this week. And thanks for giving such uh, sensible, comprehensive answers to the questions. It's been great having you on. And uh, well, we look forward to the next time we have you or your colleagues back on the podcast and we'll find out whether the landing is going to be soft or whether it's going to be some other outcome. But thank you anyway. Thanks very much for having me, John. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. 
If you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.